For some who are travellers, the stars are guides. For others, they are no more than little lights in the sky. As said by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry from The Little Prince. That you are here listening to this would seem to indicate that you are a traveller and I will help you on your journey through the night sky. This is Geoffrey Wyatt and I'm one of the education team here at the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences, Sydney Observatory. I'm going to talk to you about what's visible in the sky for the month of December. This audio guide, transcript and printable sky map are all available free from our website at www.maz.museum where you'll find a link to Sydney Observatory and the monthly sky guides. To get the most from this podcast, you're going to need some resources, including a map of the December night sky, either from our webpage or from the Australasian Sky Guide by Dr. Nick Lom. At this time of year, it should be quite nice outside. So a nice comfortable blanket to sit on and perhaps a drop of Chardonnay for those old enough to enjoy it. Most importantly, I think you need patience a sense of adventure and imagination. Let's begin. Most of us can find the four cardinal directions, north, east, south and west. Depending on the time of year, the sun roughly sets in the west and rises in the east. With a little thought, we can then find north and south. If we consider this in a little more systematic way, we can find our direction around the horizon starting from north and moving in a clockwise direction as seen from above. East would be 90 degrees azimuth, that is 90 degrees east of north. 180 degrees azimuth is therefore south, 270 degrees is west and so on. That part is relatively easy. Now consider how high from the horizon something might be. What I want you to do, therefore, is hold out your hand at arm's length. Clench your fist, but then hold up your pinky. For most people, regardless of age and size, because the proportions are all pretty much the same, a pinky at arm's length will cover roughly one degree or twice the size of the full moon. Close in the finger and you've got a clenched fist. What you have is a marker for roughly 10 degrees. Outstretch fingers and thumb from pinky tip to thumb tip you have 20 degrees with a little practice you'll be able to do it with ease let's have a go wait for 30 to 40 minutes after sunset and look to an azimuth of 270 degrees so that's west I want you to look at about 50 degrees up from the horizon that's two outstretched handspans and one clenched fist. You're looking for a star that's only 25 light years away. Light travels roughly 300,000 kilometers per second in the vacuum of space. Multiply that by 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes in an hour, 24 hours in a day, and 365 and a quarter days per year on average, and you'll end up with something like nine and a half thousand billion kilometers, which is such a silly number, we just don't use it. It's too big, it's too complicated. 
We simply say that a light year is the distance that light travels in one year in the vacuum of space. The star we're trying to find is 1.8 times the diameter of the Sun. It's a young white star and one of the first stars to have had planets directly imaged orbiting it. This was done in only 2008. The star is the brightest star in the constellation of Pisces Astrinus, the southern fish, and is called Fomalo. To the ancient Mesopotamians, perhaps as long as 5,000 years ago, this star, along with three others, Aldebaran in Taurus, Regulus in Leo, and Teres in Scorpius, were used to signpost the solstices and equinoxes, but not anymore. Fomalo was, but no longer, the brightest star near the point in the sky that marked the winter solstice as seen from the Northern Hemisphere. When you look at Fomalo, there are not many bright stars nearby. What I want you to try and see is an image of a fish. Let your imagination go and you may just be able to see a simple fish if you play dot to dot. If not, how about one of those fabulous paisley swirls that were so popular in the 1960s? If you can see anything that looks like a paisley swirl with a bright star, Fomalo at the chunky end of the swirl, then you are looking at a group or constellation of Pisces Astrinus, the southern fish. It is, incidentally, drinking the water flowing from the jug of Aquarius, the water carrier, but goodness me, that's so hard to see. Now that you've seen, though with some difficulty, Pisces Astrinus, look ever so slightly to your left or the southwest. You will probably need a star map, but try to look for a dot-to-dot long-necked bird with trailing legs in flight. Not easy, is it? But again, with practice, it does get a little easier. This particular group of stars is called Grus the Crane. It was created by Petrus Plonkius, I don't know if I've pronounced his name correctly, in the late 1500s. He was a famous Dutch astronomer. I've challenged you with these two groups of stars because I want you to see straight away they look nothing like the images we see in star atlases or on many star maps. You've got to use your imagination to change crude stick figures into more elaborate creatures that we see in our period drawings. But don't give up, it's well worth a try. And when you do eventually see some of these constellations, it's one of those, aha, uh -huh, I can see it moments. 40 degrees, or two handspans to the left of where you are, and about 60 degrees above the horizon, so it's three handspans up, you should be able to see the ninth brightest star in the night sky, and the brightest star in the constellation of Eridanus the river. The star is called Achenar, and it's a rather intriguing star because it's about seven times the diameter of the sun, but spins 15 times faster. The effect of the rapid rotation is that the star flattens at the top and the bottom and bulges in the middle. In fact, its equatorial diameter is about 50% greater than its polar diameter. You're also looking at this star as it really was 140 years ago. You're looking back in time. That means that this star is at a distance of about 140 light years. 
You see everything in the sky as it was, not as it is. From Achenar, continue to your left and drop down to about 35 degrees altitude looking for another bright star. It's actually the second brightest star in the night sky, but its low altitude at the moment will dim it by about 50%. It is Canopus at about 310 light years. It's 8.5 times the mass of the Sun and 70 times its diameter, which makes it a pretty big star. At about 1300 times the brightness of the Sun, it is the brightest star within 700 light years of us. Yet as we look at it, it's only the second brightest star in the night sky. I wonder why. Canopus is a fairly famous star. It was listed by the incredible astronomer Claudius Ptolemaeus in his Almagest around 150 AD. This whole region used to be part of a big constellation called Argo, the ship that carried Jason and the Argonauts in search of the Golden Fleece. Over the years, astronomers thought it was perhaps too big, so they broke it up into four smaller constellations that we have now. Carina the Keel, Vale of the Sails, Pyxis the Compass, and Puppus the Deck. Canopus is now considered the brightest star in Carina the Keel. The name itself probably dates back to the time of the Trojan Wars, and according to the poems and stories of the time, it was the name of the ship's captain. Fair enough, we have a ship in the sky, why not have the captain as well? What I like about this star is that the Burong indigenous community, a clan of the Wurgaya language group in what is now known as Northwestern Victoria, see this star as a male crow by the name of Wa. Wa was the first entity to bring fire to the people and he is an elder of the Narambangatia, the old spirits in the sky. If you have a telescope or a pair of binoculars, this part of the sky, although it's a bit low at the moment, is actually a beautiful region to scan. Not far away from the star Canopus or Wa, we have an intriguing object called Eta Carina which contains a cataclysmic variable star, a type of violent binary star system which last flared in the 1840s, when it went from a fairly inconspicuous third or fourth magnitude background star to being the second brightest star in the night sky and then slowly fade from visibility. The Burong incorporated this star's variability into their dreamtime or oral traditions which is really quite amazing. As a result, this star became known as Kologawaric Wa, which means the wife of the star Wa, or Canopus. Continue to the east and look about 20 degrees above the horizon. What you should see is a twinkling display of the brightest star in the night sky. It won't appear to be as bright as Canopus, which is higher up at this point in time, because being lower, you're looking through so much more of our protective and beautiful atmosphere. It's a lot closer, at only 8.6 light years, making it the fifth closest visible star to us. It's quite young, at roughly two to 300 million years. Its size, 
nearly twice as big and 25 times brighter than the Sun. While I've just mentioned a few numbers, the main thing to note is it's close. It's nowhere near as big or as bright as Canopus, but because it's relatively bright and very close, it becomes the brightest star in the night sky as seen from anywhere on the Earth. And it is Sirius, the dog star. It's a beautiful object and historically incredibly important. Thousands of years ago, the ancient Egyptians watched it very, very carefully. They'd see it disappear into the glare of the setting sun, and then for about 70 days it would not be visible. They'd then turn to the east and keep watch for it in the eastern sky in the early morning. When it first pops up just ahead of the glare of the sun, in something called heliacal rise, they were able to work out, on average, the length of the year over many years of observation to be 365 and a quarter days. Their error was just 11 minutes compared to the tropical year that we use now, and they did this thousands of years ago, which is truly an amazing achievement. I'd like to point out that to the Buron clan, it is Warapil, a male eagle, and again an elder of the Narambangatia, the old spirits. Every indigenous community around this beautiful land has incredible stories and knowledge about the night sky, and I encourage you to learn from them where possible, but remember to treat the stories with respect, as they are quite probably the oldest on the planet. Let's continue around toward your left, the east-northeast, and just about 20 degrees above the horizon. Ooh, by the way, you may have noticed that we seem to be hugging fairly close to the horizon. I'll explain a little bit more about that later on. Look for a red supergiant. To most people, it's not traffic light red or laser red, it's orangish. Anything that you see in this part of the sky that is not white or blue, you're probably looking at it. It's the tenth brightest star in the night sky. 1100 times the diameter of the Sun. Goodness gracious me, that's a huge object. Think about that for a moment. This little twinkling point of light that you're looking at in the east-northeast, roughly 20 degrees up, is 1100 times the diameter of the Sun. Don't forget, the Sun is 114 times the diameter of the Earth. You're looking at something which is simply enormous. Its distance? In the order of about 640 light years. It's more than 100,000 times brighter than the Sun. And it's a dying star. When you see a reddish looking star, it can be one of two things. It's either incredibly long lived, in fact, you could almost say immortal or it's a short-lived star at the end of its life as we see it. The thing is, the very small, almost immortal stars, well, none of those are visible to the naked eye. When you look around the night sky, every single star that you see that is orangish, reddish, is coming to the end of its life. They're all dying. We're not exactly sure of the mass of this star, but we know it's fairly big. As a result, 
when it does die, it's going to explode as a Type 2 supernova. When? Next Tuesday at 2 o'clock. No, actually, we can't predict it accurately, but sometime within 100,000 to 1 million years or so. Who really knows? It would be really cool if it did explode during our lifetime because it's relatively close and would be a spectacular object to watch. However, let me assure you, it cannot possibly hurt us. I haven't told you its name yet, have I? This is one of the most unusual names in the sky. A long, long time ago, its Arabic name was something like Ibt Ilyaza, which means something like the hand of the big man. As a result of hundreds of years of mispronunciation, the star Ibt Ilyaza is now commonly called Betelgeuse. Yes, I'm sure you've heard of it before. Some people call it Betelgeuse or Betelgeuse or even just Betelgeuse. They're all wrong, but they've all become so common they're all acceptable. Betelgeuse is a dying star. Despite being the second brightest star in the constellation or group of stars known as Orion the Hunter, it's actually named quite often as the brightest Alpha Orionis. Additionally, Australians tend to get the name of Orion wrong by calling it the saucepan. You should have a lovely clear view of it at the moment, looking toward the east-northeast. Find the orange glow of Betelgeuse, then go a little bit higher and you'll be able to see three stars in a row, close together of equal brightness. They make up the base of the saucepan. You can go up one side, up the other side, then off at an angle for the handle, and there you have it. If you can find it, you've done well. I should point out that it's not just Australians. In fact, our friends across the ditch in New Zealand often get it wrong as well, as do many people in southern Africa. If you can, point some binoculars or a small telescope at the handle of the saucepan and narrow in onto the middle star-like object. What you'll see is a stellar maternity ward, the birthplace of stars. And what you're looking at is a beautiful object named M42. Oh, great. What a fabulous name. Astronomers, like many other scientists, love to catalogue objects. M42 simply means that it is the 42nd object in a catalogue developed by a man whose name began with M, Charles Messier. He made up a list of red herrings, things not to look at if you were trying to find a comet. This particular object was simply the 42nd object of his list. It is a nebula, which is Latin for cloud. It's a star-forming cloud that's roughly 1,300 light-years away. It's absolutely huge, 24 light-years across. It's part of a much larger cloud that you can't see all of unless you do incredibly difficult astrophotography. The whole cloud is called the Orion Molecular Cloud. This portion of the cloud and dust that we can see is being lit up from within by at least eight baby stars, and we call them the trapezium. If you have a look, you might just be able to see a few of them in there. We believe there's enough material to form around 700 stars at the moment, 
Six of them, however, you can see relatively easily. Leaving Orion, our next stop is a little bit further around toward the northeast and just a little bit higher to 25 degrees above the horizon. We're looking for the star Aldebaran in the constellation of Taurus the Bull. Here you're going to see pretty much just another of these golden reddish stars. Again, the colour tells us that the star is coming to the end of its life. Thousands of years ago from Mesopotamia, Aldebaran in the constellation of Taurus the Bull was the brightest star near the vernal equinox. The vernal equinox is the point in the sky where the sun moves as we see it from the southern hemisphere into the northern hemisphere, marking the beginning of the northern spring. This was also used to signal the start of the new year in March. The idea of starting the year on the 1st of January was trialled a few thousand years ago but fell out of fashion, especially during the Middle Ages. It's only been since the Gregorian reform that it once again reverted to the 1st of January. England and its colonies only changed back to the 1st of January in 1752. Taurus with its bright star Aldebaran is perhaps the oldest of all the 88 constellations that we now officially recognise. It's a very important creature. A bull is not only a food source for many of us, it's a beast of burden and many people depend on them. It's therefore not surprising that this animal also worked its way into sky lore. In one story it's actually the king of the gods, Zeus or Jupiter, carrying his lover, the beautiful young woman Europa, off to the island of Crete. This was such a famous story from long ago that the entire continent of Europe took her name. Aldebaran, brightest star in the constellation of Taurus, is what we call a K5 orange giant. It's the 14th brightest star in the night sky at a distance of about 65 light years and coming to the end of its life. At the moment, it's exhausted most of its hydrogen fuel in its core and has expanded to about 44 times the size of the Sun, but only a little under twice its mass. It will continue to expand and die within a few million years at most. Go a little bit further toward the north, your left, and we're still at only 25 degrees above the horizon. You're going to see a small group of stars an open cluster, and most agree it's the most spectacular of all. It's called M45, or the Pleiades. At 445 light years, they're not exactly close, but they're very young, less than 150 million years old. They're so cute. They're baby stars that have just formed. When you look at pictures of M45, or the Pleiades, online, you will actually notice that quite often it's surrounded by a lovely bluish glow. That bluish dust cloud, as it turns out, is not part of the Pleiades itself. It's between us and the stars. The two-dimensional view that we have is a little confusing at times. There are many different cultural stories that relate to these stars as being seven sisters. If you have a look at them, however, you'll probably be able to see six. If you've got really good eyesight, you might see nine. Rarely do you ever meet anyone that can say, well, do you know what? I can see seven. 
Yet strangely, they're often referred to as the Seven Sisters. By the way, if you drive a Japanese car that has an emblem on it of a group of stars joined by lines, you're probably looking at a Subaru. Yes, that's right. The Japanese name for this group of stars is Subaru. These stars to the ancient Greeks represent Atlas, who carried the world upon his shoulders, his wife, Pleione, and their seven daughters. It's well worth a look. The Pleiades used to be their own constellation, but for some time now, we consider them to be part of the larger Taurus the Bull. Continue now toward the north and look for another zodiac constellation with an enormous number of stars. Let's count them together. In terms of bright stars, we have one, two, three, and that's it. It's fairly devoid of stars. What could you make out of a group of just three stars? Aries, the goat that produced the Golden Fleece that's so famous in the story of Jason and the Argonauts. There's not a whole lot here to see, unfortunately, but it is a very famous constellation in terms of sky law and astronomy. The astronomical version of longitude starts in this part of the sky at what we call the first point in Aries. Sadly, it gets rather complicated here because the Earth does a 26,000 year wobble on its axis and everything changes position ever so slowly. The first point of Aries is no longer in Aries, but has moved over into the next constellation of Pisces, the fish, and is heading towards the constellation of Aquarius, hence the 1960s song, the dawning of the age of Aquarius, though that's a few hundred years away. In my opinion, don't waste too much time looking into Aries with only three bright stars. Continue past it and now head toward the northwest for a group of stars that makes up a large square. What you're looking for is the flying horse Pegasus. If you're away from the city lights and there's no moon, and you have a good view toward the northwest, because it's quite low, you should be able to see the body of the horse, which of course is a big square. Look carefully at one of our star maps and you should be able to pick out the long neck and the face of the horse. It's got two cute little front legs, but sadly for a flying horse, what's missing? The wings. The main reason in spending time trying to find Pegasus is that wrapped around it is a fairly faint dot-to-dot -dot V shape with a little bit of a loop at either end. Oh goodness me, that sounds a bit complicated and you will definitely need your star map to be able to see this. The V-shape with the loop at either end represents Aphrodite and her son Eros, or if you like, Venus and Cupid. It is the constellation of Pisces, the fish. Continue past Pisces and we're going to finish off as we look toward the west for the constellation of Capricornus, the sea goat. It's below Fomalo, or the starting point for our tour tonight, but being the second faintest of all the constellations, it's probably a bit late for that. I mentioned earlier that all we've done is a bit of a loop around the horizon, between no more than 30 and 60 degrees up. We haven't looked directly overhead. Why not? At this time of year, and this time of night, 
the brightest part of our galaxy, the Milky Way, is sitting on the horizon. The stuff that's directly overhead now, such as Phoenix the Bird, which is one of the constellations invented by Petrus Plancius in the 16th century, or Cetus the Sea Monster, or some of the newer ones like Sculptor, were introduced by Nicolas Louis de la Salle in the 18th century. I've probably made a mess of his name, but that's the best I can do, I'm sorry. These constellations are, in effect, astronomical fillings. There's not a whole lot up there to have a look at with the naked eye. So they're there as a way of breaking the sky up into more manageable regions, a bit like outer suburbs of a big city. They are just some of the other constellations. If you can get away from the bright glow of the city or towns and there's no moon in the sky, head back toward the south and you should be able to see the large cloud of Magellan and the small cloud of Magellan. These look like two fluffy bits of the Milky Way that have drifted off and broken away, a faint, wispy glow of light. The large Magellanic cloud is an irregular galaxy with a central bar. It's the third closest galaxy to us at about a hundredth the size of the Milky Way. There's enough material in this galaxy to form about 10 billion stars the same as the Sun. At 160,000 light years, astronomically, it's very close. It's so close that the Milky Way is stripping stars away from it in something called the Magellanic Stream. The large Magellanic Cloud is actually a rather spectacular object to have a look at. With a small telescope, you'll be able to see one of the largest nebulae that we've ever seen, called the Tarantula Nebula. Once again, nebula is just Latin for cloud. It's a very rich, star-forming region and well worth a look. Long, long ago, in the last millennium, 1987 in fact, goodness me, such a long time ago, this area of the sky was the home to the first supernova, exploding star, visible to the naked eye since 1604. We're desperate to see a star blow up in our galaxy, the Milky Way, but not too close of course. We haven't seen one since the invention of the telescope more than 400 years ago, and that's just a little annoying. The other small patch of light that you can see is the small Magellanic Cloud. It has a mass of about 7 billion times that of the Sun and is about 201,000 light years away. Key events for December 2017. Full Moon is on Monday the 4th at 2.47am. Last Quarter Moon is on Sunday the 10th at 6.51pm. New Moon is on Monday the 18th at 5.30pm. The first quarter moon is on Tuesday the 26th at 8.20pm Australian Eastern Daylight Time or AEDT. The summer solstice, the point at which the sun reaches its most southerly point in the sky, is at 3.28am on Friday the 22nd of December. This is also the longest day with the sun above the horizon for 14 hours and 25 minutes in Sydney. Many people assume that the longest day is the day in which we have the earliest sunrise and the latest sunset for the year. Some even get a little upset and write letters to newspapers when they discover that this is not the case. The earliest sunrise is in early December, 
while the latest sunset doesn't occur until early January. And that is the result of our non-circular orbit around the Sun and a tilt of 23.5 degrees caused by an impact perhaps as long as 4 billion years ago. Cool, huh? The best meteor shower for the year for us in the south is the Geminids, which peaks on the 14th and 15th. The waning crescent moon should have little effect, so make the effort to find a dark location looking north. Sit down, make yourself comfortable, and wait. If you are patient, I can almost guarantee that you'll see these tiny visitors burn up as they collide with our protective atmosphere at stunning speeds, between 80 and 120 kilometres above us. The evening sky in December is in effect planetless. Saturn and Mercury in Sagittarius set shortly after the Sun within the first few days of the month. By the middle of the month, Mercury sets before the Sun and Saturn 20 minutes later. Oh dear, no planets in the December night sky. The morning sky is a little better. The fleet-footed Mercury will appear in the 13th zodiac Ophiuchus just below Scorpius, low in the east by the end of the month. Mars is low in the east in Virgo at the start of the month before drifting back into Libra and a close approach to Jupiter late in December and early January. It's well worth looking at Mars and noting how bright it is throughout December. Why? Well, next year, in July, Mars will be the brightest it has been since 2003 and for about another 15 years, but you'll have to wait until next year for more information about the 2018 opposition of Mars and an incredibly rare event. Whatever your plans for next July, make sure you're ready for a super early morning of viewing on the 28th of July as it will be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Make sure you follow us for more details. On the 14th of December, the waning crescent moon will be below Mars and to the left of Jupiter. By the 15th, the moon will be closer to Jupiter, just below it in the constellation of Libra. If you want more detailed sky maps, sunrise, sunset, moon and tidal times, and a whole lot more astronomical information, I recommend you purchase the book The Australasian Sky Guide by Dr Nick Lom, available from Sydney Observatory and Powerhouse Museum shops. It's only $16.95 if you come into our shops. There are additional postage charges if you order online. Our website at maz.museum has lots of up-to-date information on our astronomy blog and details about visiting Sydney Observatory to look through our wonderful telescopes and see a program in the Digital Planetarium. We have programs for all ages and you can also engage with us on Facebook by searching for Sydney Observatory or via Twitter at SydneyOb. This is Geoffrey Wyatt. I'm one of the team from the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences, Sydney Observatory, and I hope you've enjoyed this tour of the December night sky.